Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. I spoke with Julie Carson, professor of English at the University of California at Santa Barbara and the author of England's First Family of Writers, Mary Wollstonecraft, William Godwin, and Mary Shelley, and in the theater of Romanticism, Coleridge, Nationalism, Women, and the editor of several other books. Carson has thought for a long time about Frankenstein and about Shelley and about her parents, Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin, and she talked to me about this book which is so enduring because it created a myth that has allowed people to attach their longings, their dreams, their desires, and their fears to a creation that sprang from the mind of a 19-year-old woman. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world with Uli Bear. I'm really excited to speak about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with Julie Carson, who's professor of English at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Julie, first of all, thank you for making time and coming on the podcast today. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Julie, you've written a lot about the Wollstonecraft, Godwin, Shelley family, England's first family. And I was really interested in reading your book about the whole context in which Mary Wollstonecraft, Godwin, Shelley writes Frankenstein, that you said something really interesting there. You said there's the father, a philosopher, the mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Women, if one of the, if not the earliest feminist, and then Mary Shelley, the daughter, and you say... They're trying something new. They're trying to find a new mode of being or even a new species who becoming this community of writers who relate both as a family and as writers. And they try to really achieve something that hadn't been conventional and to become kind of new people. So I was interested in this idea of creating something really new, which relates directly to the novel we're going to talk about. 
Yes, well, both Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin were understood to be part of this group of philosopher writers called the New Philosophers in the 1790s. They were often also called New Moralists. And it was partly a pejorative term. I mean, they were radicals. And so sometimes they're understood to be Jacobin fiction writers. But part of what they, along with Thomas Holcroft and Mary Hayes and Robert Bage, those are really the five that are considered part of this group, what especially Wollstonecraft and Godwin were trying to do was to figure out how to recraft human relations especially familial relations or marriage and family relations to be more, more conducive to justice or to what they consider an opening out of the heart. And so Godwin is probably most famous and most extreme on, on this topic, but in the inquiry concerning political justice, he has this quote that I use often where he says, what magic is there in the pronoun my that should overturn universal truth? And basically what he's getting at is the sort of sanction that family values gives, in his view, to egotism, to a kind of, you know, circling of the wagons and a concern with one's own. So Wollstonecraft is, formulates it differently, but is also interested in trying to especially recraft heterosexual marital or erotic relations on the basis of friendship. Both of them come together in that effort. And they see fiction and new philosophical writing, which can be philosophical, but the new part for them generally is not seeing such a clear distinction between fiction and philosophy. Godwin talks about bringing fancy into the discipline of philosophy as the way to get at truth. So part of what they're trying to do in their non-fictional and fictional writing is really, I think, redesign affective relations so that one is more inclined through cultural values to want to be open to others rather than closed off and worried only about their own. So they are a family, but you're saying they're trying to rethink what does a family produce that's good, affection, love, but what does it produce that excludes others and therefore is not just because it excludes those who don't belong or don't have the same blood or the same lineage? Exactly. Yeah. Godwin is really, in some ways, anti the sort of, I mean, they didn't call it the nuclear family then. But, you know, his whole point is we should support in our relational values and our cultural choices those people who do more to better society and living conditions. And so he has that famous quote in the first edition of the inquiry about the philosophical problem that if your house is on fire and there are two people to save, one of whom is the philosopher and alone, and one is your mother. Justice requires that you save the philosopher. And of course, this didn't fly very well. But I mean, I took that thought experiment seriously. Not so much. I mean, he changed to be your chambermaid and then your valet and so on. I mean, he switched around the gender stuff in the (laughs) subsequent editions. But his point is really the pronoun my, my mother, my father should not have bearing on how we live. I mean, one should not hate one's mother. He understands that the family, for pragmatic reasons, one is more familiar with them and therefore, you know, interested in their welfare. But it's for him not a moral right to care for the family. It's in fact, he says it's the biggest impediment to justice. You know, there's lots of elements that one would want to back away from with God when I 
I mean, he has a view of the illustrious men and the illustrious dead and so on. But the bigger point of just simply looking at why why we tend to feel satisfied or where we feel, especially in American culture, you know, that family values are moral values is the question that I'm picking up from him and trying to push. You know, Mary Shelley is certainly concerned with that question in Frankenstein, the new, and more generally is often read as the author of Frankenstein, but especially in her later works, as pulling back on her parents' radicalism and, you know, reinscribing the importance of domestic affection. And I don't, I mean, there are, there are reasons, there are very good reasons why people say this, but I don't see it as such a reaction or pushing back. I think that what she's partly doing is softening Godwin's views. And Frankenstein is a lot about writing from what it means to be an experiment, which she was. I mean, (laughs) she was an experiment of these radical writers. And that's, you know, taking it up from the point of view of the one who was experimented on. That's part of what she is letting the creature voice. In the sense of being the daughter of a philosopher who he said espouses these radical new ideas of what ethics could be and a writer, a philosopher who is one of the very first to say women are equally capable as men and is vilified for it ultimately and dies in right after childbirth. So Mary Shelley is an experiment in the sense of being brought up by people who don't believe that the conventional gender roles really work well for anybody. Exactly. And so she's the product of a very blended family, one could say. Of course, you know, Wollstonecraft comes with Fanny Imlay, who's the daughter of Gilbert Imlay. And then when she dies, of course, Godwin then remarries Mary Jane Claremont, who comes with two other children, each of whom has a different father. And so Mary Godwin, ultimately Shelley, grows up in a household that's really quite radical in its day. Even now, it would be understood to be radical. And Godwin softens some, but very unapologetic. And Wollstonecraft, of course, is dead. But her writings, too, well, especially after Godwin published the memoir of the author of The Vindication of the Rights of Woman, and he, you know, he publishes it as a mourning text in 1798. But he tells the truth about Wollstonecraft's, you know, menage a trois with Fuseli, and he tells about Imlay, he tells about her suicide attempts. And so the culture is outraged about Wollstonecraft. And this is Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley's childhood context. Not simple. Yeah. And as you're saying that friendship becomes another model, another mode, in some ways you're saying it's not just a family, really. It's actually a group of people who also look at each other as friends and co-writers. And there's a lot of what will happen then with Shelley, the poet, They're editing each other. They're publishing one another. Shelley publishes the first version of Frankenstein under a pseudonym. So it's not Mary Shelley's book. So it's sort of friendship as a way of forming another type of community. Yes. So they both, in different ways, endorse friendship as the best model for human relations. And so they mean different things by it. But in general, Godwin and Wollstonecraft Well, Godwin especially also wants to extend the friendship model in in some ways to parent-child relations. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he's aware that there are some, you know, some differentials. And he, as we know, Godwin is better as a mentor and educator than as a father. But he's very serious about that. And of course, he does take up several young people, young men as charges 
in his life. You know, it's a model where, again, blood does not determine the proximity one claims to another's mind. And Godwin really doesn't agree with the principle of obedience. I mean, he sees that as part of tyranny. So, you know, obviously he has to make certain kinds of compromises. And, you know, Godwin is famously tyrannical in in some of his views. I mean, not politically, but, you know, he can be quite dogmatic and dictatorial. But yes, he's really trying to get outside relations that are based in law, like marriage or blood, like parent-child relations. And even, you know, what I'm interested in in the friendship model, I mean, that I carry on into contemporary times, is that really even beyond teacher-student relations, friendship is anti-institutional or a-institutional. I mean, it's not, it's not hooked up with any particular social institution. So it, it maintains some notion of choice, even as, of course, choice is increasingly constrained by, you know, our views of the role of unconscious processes in every affective relation. But they want to maintain that in ways that I find really worth still thinking about. And the final thing I say for them, as well as what I'm interested in, is that they also consider a person's relation to text, to either themselves as writers or bookish people more generally as readers, our relation to writing and books as a friendship or as a friend-based affective relation. And so it's really the triangulation of those objects. (laughs) I mean, that friend answers. Friend is interpersonal. Friend is friends of man, you know, the sort of benevolent justice. And friend is a friend to text or friend to literary or certain beloved texts that are formative. And of course, Frankenstein's all about that. I mean, the creature is raised basically reading. So Shelley, she writes it when she's 19 in about a year, right? Publishes so far pretty inconceivable as a teenager writing a book and she when I'm listening to you she strikes me really as kind of a Californian teenager in the 70s raised by kind of hippie <laughs> parents unconventional yeah. some uh-huh. radical feminist uh, kind of self-aggrandizing philosopher and then this young girl becomes a woman and writes this novel where you said she tests her parents philosophies she also enacts this idea that it's a book made up of letters and framing stories and writing. And as you said, the the creature or the, the creation or the demon, as he's called in the novel, never called the monster, he learns to right. become not human, but ethical and love others and feel a sense of justice through reading and listening and reading several important books. But I couldn't quite say he becomes human because the humans don't prove to be very humane. If he learned to be human, he would become a cruel the cruel fiend he is at some point, but initially he actually is awakened to a different kind of ethics or a different kind, you can't quite say humanity. So the book sort of stages how do we become educated into behaving like good people or kind people, loving people. And it's really interesting because, of course, as we know, everybody's view is distorted. We call the monster Frankenstein. We call the creature a monster. All these words which are not found in the book, really. Right, exactly. I'm fascinated and I'm, and in certain ways, heartened by, you know, the enormous popularity of Frankenstein and its uptake in popular culture. So, you know, sometimes people, especially during the 200th anniversary, when I was, you know, asked to speak at various times, you know, some people would assume I hated, you know, all the films because they get it so wrong. 
And they do get it wrong. But for me, it's partly about it also is just it's such an indication of how many nerves that text touched. And I think every filmic or pop cultural remake foregrounds one of the trajectories in the novel, but the novel has so many, you know, I mean, so many kinds of issues that it's trying to raise. I mean, the technological or the bioethical is only one, even though that's, of course, quite prominent now, but it's a very political text. It's a revolutionary text. You know, it's framing context is post-enlightenment, post-French revolution, you know, immediate post-French revolution, upheavals, it's very concerned with gender relations, ethnic strife. And then the creature, of course, as you know, you very well know, I mean, the creature has been such a powerful spokesperson for every aggrieved community and disenfranchised group, you know, since the text was written. And so what people take out of Frankenstein never equals the text because the text is so multi-layered. But I love the sort of collision among strands of the story. And again, it's part of like what you implied. I mean, the text, it's an amazing text for that. I mean, that she was so young and that it has had such longevity and longevity around so many different kinds of issues. I mean, the, the tech, I want to pick up on one thing you just said, that the creation of the monster has become a spokesperson or a kind of symbol for aggrieved communities, people who really had to speak into a mainstream culture and were kind of rebuffed and rejected and thrown out. And weirdly, I think even when we have the most superficial understanding from some movies, from Boris Karloff or something, there is something that fascinates us about the monster. It is not just a mindless machine of destruction, but there's something we always pick up on. That he has a reason to do what he's doing. And the reason is in right. us. Everybody remembers the terrible scenes. He snatches a kid or murders somebody, but there's something, and it's not that there's something interesting and evil, but actually that he was made to do this. Right. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, as he says, I was born benevolent. Misery made me a fiend. And he says misery. And misery made me a fiend. Yeah, certainly the early versions of 1931 and The Bride of Frankenstein, 1930. I mean, they have enormous sympathy for the creature because he is so isolated. And, you know, in a certain way, it follows from what I'm saying about the new philosophical project of friendship. His initial actions are open hearted, but he's deliberately and consistently misread. I mean, as monstrous. And that's why I think he's been such a powerful articulation for every group that feels like, you know, they're just trying, you know, to do whatever they're trying to do. And they move from what they feel about them themselves internally, whatever, you know, that's a complicated formulation, I know. But and instead, they're read from the outside as, you know, other in now so many different kinds of ways. And so, you know, I got quite interested in all the readings of the creature as black. Lots of people have worked on that. I mean, it's he's often understood to be a racialized creature, even before that gendered, you know, I mean. The pronoun is he, but of course, lots of people from the beginning saw it as Mary Shelley's kind of articulation about the female writer. And I mean, there were lots of criticism about the creature in the, the early 90s that talked about gay and lesbian sensibilities, trans sensibilities more recently. Also, you know, communities that are neuro non-typical and, you know, so class, I mean, huge 
literature on the proletariat. And, you know, and it started, I mean, with the first theater production in 1823, where the creature was already rendered mute. I mean, he was musical. He was in blue body paint and big, but the audience was moved by him because he had a kind of lyricism in his silence that was kind of in touch with music and creatures. But then there was the famous reference by George Canning in Parliament in the next year about how, again, we shouldn't emancipate the slaves in the West Indies because if we learn from a recent romance, as he put it, you know, someone who has the body of a human or a big human and the brain of a child should not be freed without, you know, restrictions. And so, I mean, already in 1824, the literal reference to slavery was made and was made in the, you know, was made in Parliament. So it's had a long history. When is the first edition published? In 1818. So 11 years later in mm -hmm. Parliament, someone refers to it as a cultural reference point and turns it against itself and says, we should keep these people enslaved to be judged by their outward appearance based on a novel which said the opposite, which actually really said he's treated unjustly from beginning to end. And he didn't only have right. musical dimension, but he's so sophisticated by learning from oh. from Milton's Paradise Lost, Goethe's Werther, and he, he reads these books and he becomes such a sophisticated analyst of the human condition because he's also observing for quite a while without participating. Right, exactly. I mean, most people think that the George Canning reference was to the play, that he hadn't read the book. And so the play, again, like I say, the play is sympathetic toward the creature, but he doesn't speak. So you don't get, I mean, you know, and that's, of course, something in all of the films. You know, the creature's never reading, but that's basically all he does. <laughs> I mean, I'm overstating, but, you know, he's either watching a film, in effect, when he's, you know, observing the DeLacy family, which is how he learns to speak and read. But, but yeah, I mean, and certainly what he's reading, as as you've said, I mean, one is, you know, with Goethe's Werther, it is about, I mean, as he says, he learns to name feeling, right? And he learns not just the names like brother, sister, father, and so on but also the power of passionate connection that he then learns, you know, the collective history of that through reading Plutarch and then Paradise Lost and so on. But yes, the text is a very powerful reading itinerary in exactly what you said, how dehuman or ahuman or unhuman, inhumane humans are. And can you yeah. say something what yeah. you just said, but he's misread. He initially went into the DeLacy family. So the first family he gets close to, he observes them for a few months. They have a blind elderly father and he sees his chance to go in and not be judged by appearance. So he, the, the creature right. walks into this little hovel and says, I plead my case to you. I want people to like me. I want people to not judge me, but they're going to be probably turned off. And the, the man doesn't really understand why. And then and everything falls apart. It's this terrible scene. But he has a moment when he thinks I can be judged on my own merit from the things I've right. now learned. So actually, he sort of says, right. we can transcend our nature, we can learn to be because he learned it, as you said, through reading, but then he's misread. And this misreading happens right. over and right. over again. And the most egregious is probably from his creator. Right, of course. Yeah. And in the DeLacy episode, many people have talked about this, but the text makes it clear the problem is vision. 
and what Wordsworth and Coleridge were talking about, especially in the Wordsworth in the Prelude, the despotism of the I, E-Y-E, but also capital I. Because it matters. I mean, it works because De Lacy is blind. And the creature, as he puts it, has learned the godlike science of language. So he's deeply persuasive and his voice carries credibility. And even as you're leading toward with his creator, right? Victor finally listens to him when the creature covers Victor's eyes and says, hear my story, which of course is also crucial to Shelley that again, texts telling one story for especially subordinated creatures of various types. We need culture. I mean, the dominant folk, the creators, the victors need to hear other people's stories. But vision, literally and figuratively, or the physical, or seeing the body, seems to be something for her that renders this impossible. Because he really, a couple times, right, the creature really does get through to somebody. But it's always when sight is disabled. And then, of course, Victor is so blind to himself that he agrees for a while, but then he's got so much unconscious problems <laughs> that... Uh, he can't, he can't. Shelley invents this, you know, Harold Bloom called him a moral idiot, this scientist who creates a creation. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't know, he's in such a frenzy of creativity, he sews up this body, and he only realizes at the moment when the creation comes to life that there's something wrong. It's a little bit like what you said earlier about biotech and genetic engineering and mm -hmm. all these things, that we have cases now where we have cloned animals and right. presumably have cloned a human being in China and then American scientists think we should have different rules and laws. They're culturally specific. So but she creates this man who actually takes on the role of a woman to create a new human being, right? So this has been a large part of the discussion and reception of Frankenstein. Yeah, you know, again, that's part of the power of the text. She's saying discovery is great. The imagination is a powerful faculty. We need new ideas and so on, but they don't occur in a vacuum and they can't stay in a vacuum. And to simply see inventiveness and discovery as if it doesn't then live. I mean, as if they then once whatever it is that you have discovered or invented or created or put into the world, as if there are no consequences to that. It's a very powerful account on so many levels of why the imagination needs to be thought more broadly. I mean, thought in its cultural context and in its ethical context. And one of the things that is really important to me to say about the text is that I don't read it as a critique primarily of science or scientists. I mean, certainly that's part of it. For her, It's a critique, I think, of the imagination. I mean, in other words, she's writing to romantic poets, mainly male, as well as romantic male scientists to say, you can't just make something and then turn your back on it. And in fact, what I love about the 1831 preface that most people don't talk much about is that it's less that she's saying the ethical thing. You know, I mean, what you remember, she depicts the waking dream, you know, because she says at the beginning, you know, I'm going to answer the question that so many people have asked how a young girl could dilate on so hideous an idea. And later she takes us through this waking dream where her imagination unbidden possessed her. And she says, I see the pale of unhallowed arts, right? When the thing he creates is animated. And instead of focusing on that it was wrong of him, you know, to turn away from the creature and leave him to raise himself. 
What she says is he can't get away from the vision. Their connection is inescapable. That's what she's focusing on. She imagines Victor, I mean, she doesn't call him Victor yet, but a pale student wanting that spark of life to die and then to rest in the grave and never see the light of day again. And that he then could go to sleep and be done with it, right? And she says, he wakes again and behold, right? The creature is staring at him with water, watery speculative eyes. And this for me is so much more powerful. And then she says, as the author voice, she was terrorized by that thought. And she's trying to get out of the terror of the waking vision of the pale student who now can't ever believe that this spark of life is gone, you know, can be extinguished from the world. And she says the terror of that made her try to think of something to get her out of that vision. So then she says, I then thought of the story, not the content of the story, but just I thought of how I haven't yet been able to satisfy this writing contest. And then she said, Eureka, I've found my story. But in other words, she isn't even giving us the description of the plot of the story. She's giving us the terror, the affective genesis (laughs) that because she was so frightened by this vision, she then thought of trying to write a story and then realized this is the story. It's a very complicated and wild account of creativity. She writes a story about a man creating life, but what you're also describing right now, she's surrounded by these overconfident, super ambitious, successful writers, all this bro culture, as we would say today. She's also in love with them, and there's a competition going on. She doesn't think she can quite live up to it. So she's saying, but they will become so enamored with their own capacities that this is also terrifying for her to watch. So in some ways, she's exorcising this vision It's also an interesting, nice irony and revenge that her book is by far the most famous of any romantic writer. I know, it is. It's quite amazing and quite wonderful. Again, I think she is really reviewing. I mean, already in 1818, that's what's so amazing. She's only 19. But she's aware that the sort of male poetic spirit that thinks as well, that it can re-engineer society, you know, toward justice or... You know, Percy Shelley is famously idealistic in some ways, nihilistic in other ways, but certainly idealistic. And she's like, it's not either or. And she believes in the power of inventiveness, but not divorced from other aspects of one's life or one's affective reality. And so I do try not to let discussions go, you know, that are with the public, but also in in the academy toward only critique of scientists. I think it's the critique of male hubris but it is in the arts as because she's very well aware. I mean, part of what I think is important in this text is that books have done enormous harm. You know, books, ideas, I mean, the Bible, I mean, you know, books have done enormous harm. And those books that we consider to be profoundly humanistic, as you were saying at the beginning, actually are at the minimum a justification for enormous atrocity but in themselves, espousing unjust and asymmetric views. It's too simple for humanists to say this is the critique of science and technology, run amok. It's an angry text. It's a warning text. At the same time that it, it isn't giving up on either, right? I mean, it believes it, it is inventive itself. It believes in the power of words. But one has to be aware that you can't 
come up with an idea, especially one that gets taken up, let's say, in the world or in the press, and then think, oh, wait, I didn't mean for a bomb here. So now I solve myself of all responsibility. And yet the response is complicated. The plot of the book takes us through this deliberation. What is one's responsibility toward one's creative power? So Victor, and he meets the creation somewhere in the Alps, and then they have this long discussion. And it's stunning because it's so eloquent and moving and beautiful, as you said, when he covers his eyes. And you're finding yourself suddenly thinking, this is the creature and he can speak like this? This is the height of, <laughs> of achievement and then you have this pursuit both to Scotland and then back. And you always know in the shadow and in the back, there's this doppelganger somewhere and he's lurking and we don't even know how he gets there. So what you just described, which is sort of a critique of unbridled arrogance and sort of we think we have ideas and we don't have responsibility, but it's dramatized as this unfolding of this hunt and it's in two directions and it's the creature hunting the creator and won't let go. And the creator then thinking at some point I can just forget about this idea and I can sort of escape. And there's such blindness because he says, as long as I deny it and just say it doesn't work. And he goes to the authorities, which is interesting. So the state doesn't play a big role. And the authorities said, we can't hunt this creature. It could be anywhere. Right. Exactly. No. And I think she's also really getting at, well, certainly in the, as you say, the second part of the book, which becomes much more obsessional, right? I mean, obsessive kind of search and, and, and then violent, of course, when he thinks he can get out of it by killing, annihilating the female creature. But it's also the question of responsibility is really important to her. At the same time, she's aware that so much of these animating processes, including creativity, are unconscious, <laughs> or at least part, you know, I mean, the they come from the unconscious. So to try to assign responsibility is even more difficult than, say, when we're talking about enlightenment ideas and empirical science. And she's really aware, like especially in her characterization of Victor. I mean, one of the things that I don't think people talk about as much either, I mean, I mean, they all talk about, of course, the nesting frame narratives that give multiple perspectives. But what she's also teaching us, I think, especially in Victor's story, is that we have to read between the lines of what he says, because he will come up with these kind of retroactive, moralizing and defensive accounts, you know, really, I should never have done X and Y, but his actions belie most of those dogmatic or maxim formulations he has. I think it's really interesting is she is teaching us how to read for the unconscious in a fictional text, especially something like, you know, I will be with you on your wedding night. And, you know, everybody's aware. Why does he never think, you know, the issue is Elizabeth? Because, well, first of all, because he was never with her on his wedding night. And that wasn't his point. She's really showing us also that we have to take into account not only that power or dominant men or dominant structures get away with things because of their ability to to deny responsibility. But she's also looking at the mechanics of how denial operates in the psyche, which I think is really amazing. And what's interesting when you say it, it's sort of allowing us to read for the unconscious or unconscious motivation. That's really a word that doesn't become popularized until 100 years later through Freud and his right. disciples. And 
at the same time, the romantics are all about exploring their inner selves, right? So they are seeing the landscape of the eye, the landscape of the mind. And so in some ways, they're obsessively interrogating themselves. But somehow she seems to be saying they're not getting close to what's working, what's really working inside of them. And maybe they have, maybe there's, there could be a couple of reasons. Maybe they're too optimistic that humanity will progress and the enlightenment will free us from our kind of superstition. Maybe because they're pretty much all men and they're very few women's voices who register, right? So she's sort of seeing in them, while they're so obsessed with themselves, they're completely missing what drives them. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. And, you know, by her focusing on, in 1831, in the preface, that the imagination possesses her. She says, my imagination unbidden possessed me. But she means that more generally. And Percy Shelley are talking about kind of the mysteries of the unconscious and dreams and, you know, the interrelation between imagination and unconscious processes, but not on the question of ethics or responsibility or what that does or what pressure that puts on human relationships. They tend to be slightly more either or about it. And so I do think that she's really getting at something deeper. Coleridge uses the word psychoanalytic in his writings. He's pretty close to a a Freudian account in his interest in dreams and so on. But he's so split on defending himself when he needs to that he doesn't allow it in in the same way that I think Mary Shelley is she's critical. You know, I mean, not, not even critical. She's just trying to take that more seriously. So like her next text, which is the next year, Matilda, 1819, you know, which is a much lesser known text, but it's a novella. It's about incest, but not literal incest. She does this now with her female characters. It's not just a critique of men. Like, it's not that she's saying Matilda is guilty, but what she is saying is that the text that Matilda references, the literary texts, which are Greek classics, they are all the ones she references, have incest motifs. So again, the notion that I knew nothing of this, this was beyond my ken, is simply discredited by the literary text she's naming. Doesn't mean Matilda's wrong. I mean, like, you know, like that she's horrible, but she's really saying, people, if we're going to value literature, And if we're really thinking, I mean, again, I think this is an argument with her parents, among other things, but that texts are part of what design us, design our desires and inform our psyches as well as our identities, then we have to think what that means. We have to start thinking about that. This is the moment when many more people have access to printed materials, when there's suddenly this public sphere and when there's a kind of stranglehold on information has been loosened. So there's a much more... dangerous or a great potential for texts to influence people. Exactly. But what she's also saying is, given that almost all the texts that are valued in the culture are written by white men of a certain class, we're actually ignorant. Wollstonecraft's texts are trying to explore this, you know, and certainly Wrongs of Woman, the working class figure in Jemima, who's the warden of Maria in the mental ward where her husband's confined her. They become friends, even even though at first they're enemies and they're class enemies because, of course, Mariah's middle class. But they become friends through telling their stories to each other. And they realize, even though how they have been affected as women in this society differs, given that Jemima was impoverished and Mariah wasn't, still there's common cause under patriarchy. And they learn to befriend each other through 
their love for literature and for telling stories. And at one point when Jemima's telling her story several times, she's trying to, in effect, explain how she came to this dehumanizing job, that is being a warden of a madhouse and trying to keep Mariah away from her baby who's taken from her. She says the same. I was born benevolent in effect, but I became a monster. You know, I think there's a direct link between Jemima and the creature on the question of, again, how constantly being misread because of one's identity or subject position does things to one's (laughs) love. But Shelley takes it further. And what you just said that actually really interesting is you said we may not know anything about ourselves because all the texts we're reading were written by white men who cannot know everything about humanity. And this is a book that is a book about all of humanity by being about a creature that was pieced together from a bunch of corpses, basically. So in some ways it takes right. up this question. And it's interesting to me that this book becomes such a key text for feminist literary criticism, although it wasn't published under her name. It has really no female characters that have a lot of depth. And so it's not read to say, oh, this is an empowering novel about women. This is about, you're saying, a deeper critique of the entire tradition, and it allows us to see the kind of blind spot in the tradition, and the creation gives space to this. I think this is why it was taken up by the deconstructive critics who sort of say this opens up the space for something that is informed rather than this is a powerful woman character written by a woman here as a text. Right. Absolutely. Yes. No, there aren't powerful women in this. You know, there are moving women. And Justine, of course, has an important story. But in general, it's an angry text. It's a space clearing text. It's an indictment. And it's like, yeah, there aren't solutions yet proposed in 1818. It's more like, you know, if we... Stay on this course, you know, with this kind of view of imagination or inventiveness as exploration and penetrate the secrets of nature without concern for the consequences and without respect for other ways of being. Elizabeth, you know, is presented as more poetic, like says at one point, the world to her was a vacancy that she peopled with imagination. And to Victor, it was a secret that he needed to penetrate. And, of course, Henry Clerval is somewhere in between because he's interested in the arts and they do theater together and so on. But his dad's a merchant and, and doesn't want him to go to university till later. But then he's in the feminine role to nurse Victor back into sanity. But, yeah, I think it's more like what she's saying is we don't yet know what to put in place, but this can't, this, this can't stay <laughs> because we aren't going to get anywhere with it. Say, to the extent people then see it as more conservative in the sense of wanting to make space for domestic affection and, you know, that Victor should be thinking about his home space and so on. That's not wrong. It's just part of what Mary Shelley's trying to. I mean, again, it's all part of that same monomaniacal way of looking at the world. And she is saying we are so interwoven and interconnected. That doesn't even make sense. The whole narrative is framed around the question of friendship. Part of, again, what she's looking at is you can say what you want about friendship, but both Victor and Robert Walton, the framed narrative guy, I mean, he says he has one want in life, and that is he lacks a friend. And so off he goes to the North Pole, like that's where you're going to find your friends. So she's just, I think it's a funny text in some way. You know, at just the one place he, you would think, and he sails further and further north. Yeah. 
but there's nobody left, and then he finds Victor. Right, right and yes, uh, yeah, it's true, he does then. But then Victor's like, I don't need, need any friends because mine are all dead, and that's how I like them, basically, is how I read that. <laughs> I like anyway. that you said it's an angry text, and it's sort of, in some ways, it's staying power, I think, that, that people can connect to. It challenges convention. There's At the end of the scene, when the creature yes. comes into the ship, Victor is about to die. Walton comes into the cabin and the monster's about to flee. And then he's mourning the death of his creator, who he's hounded now. And he took this oath to kill him and torture him or ruin his life. What do you make of the scene? Is it a scene of reconciliation? And there's this third person you said, Robert, who wants to be the friend as a witness to this scene between the creature and his creator. Yeah, I do think that Robert Walton does learn something from the narrative. In other words, at first he remembers Victor's words because Victor says again, don't you dare listen to him, you know, because his words are powerful. And so Walton is kind of steeled against that. But the creature doesn't hate Victor. He wants a relationship. And hatred is one kind of, it is a intense relational structure that's very close to love. So in other words, the creature doesn't want Victor dead. That's why he leaves him notes, you know, you'll find me here, and he, right? And he leaves food for him. <laughs> so, you know, I don't mean like he just loves him. I mean, yes, they are on a sort of pursuit to the death. But for the creature, it is about another encounter. I mean, some kind of, again, presence rather than absence. And so when he sees Victor dead, that's why he says he wants to go off to die. But Shelley leaves it ambiguous what happens to him. So I think that the the staging of that scene is to show the power, uh, the intensity of the creature's feelings, very mixed feelings, but he wants revenge, but he wants revenge on things that will hurt Victor, not Victor's death. I mean, that's why, you know, he kills off the people that he supposedly cares about, but on some level knows he doesn't really care about him anyway. And I do think that Robert Walton, even though he first, you know, he lets Victor harangue the mutineers about, you you know, basically you a bunch of wusses that want to go back home. You know, what happened to your desire for glory? But he listens to the crew and he's going back and he listens to the creature. You know, he doesn't kill the creature. That's the bare minimum of, of optimism or hope that Shelley scripts at the end that, again, by telling his story, something does change in Walton in a way that it... it change for a minute for Victor, but then, you know, the intensity between worrying about his own and the good of humanity, what, you know, he couldn't really reconcile the two. And Walton is in a more tempered position in both respects. It's an amazing scene. It's almost also the victim of this terrible abuse confronting the perpetrator without either giving him absolution or hoping for reconciliation. Right. But they have to have this moment. And it's kind of terrifying to watch because you don't nothing is going to be resolved the creature still wants to be in this room and speed it's almost right. just being there and being recognized one time at least and robert becomes the witness to this recognition there's i wonder whether it's also the last scene where someone sees the creature's capacity for compassion there's a witness to it exactly. and then he goes off and then we are the witnesses to it but then he goes off into the polar ice and we don't know right Yes. No, I think that's right. And there would be no way to have it resolved. You know, I mean, I think that's, again, sort of the brilliance of Shelley, that she left left it that way. So this is 1818, 1819, you know, when he writes the really dark (laughs) 
domestic tragedy, the Chenchi. In the preface, he talks about, you know, because it's a similar thing where Beatrice Chenchi, you know, kills her father, or arranges to have her father killed because he's already killed his sons and, you know, he's trying to rape her. And, and so Shelley, Percy Shelley talks in the preface about the casuistry that is set up in Beatrice where he says, you know, the audience feels she's justified and feels she isn't. I mean, in other words, we never really condone murder or killing one's father at the same time that the aggravating circumstances are so extreme. She can't not do something, especially because Tenchi has said, if you come back to me, in effect, I will construe this rape as consent. It's an excruciating play. And so Percy Shelley is also saying, this is what the audience needs to reckon with. And I think Mary Shelley has already done that in 1818 by making us not feel that the creature, especially the sort of havoc that he has wreaked, but also predicted. We shouldn't sit easily with that resolve either. And yet to say he's a monster is just not getting the point of what we as a society or as readers have to confront if we're really going to deal with any of these issues. There was the 200-year anniversary last year. I know you've done a lot of public events around this. What do you think this book... (laughs) I mean, we have Edgar Allan Poe in our culture. We have Stephen King, Absolute Horror and all this. But somehow it's unusual for a book about a monster to be in the canon of high literature. It's uncommon to have a book from a woman in the canon in the 19th century. So in some ways, this book really stands on its own, or do you think it has a progeny? It's unusual that the canon accepts a book about horror. Edgar Allan Poe is really not canonized like that. (laughs) Well, I think we're getting more invested in horror and the gothic. There is such an interest in apocalypticism and, you know, and on every front, I mean, with the Anthropocene and so on. So... I think some of that feels actually more high cultural now than it used to, but I don't have a good account of why other than it's a mythic text. To me, it's sort of like metamorphosis. I mean, that might be the other one that is since Mary Shelley's Kafka's metamorphosis. The characters are well drawn out, but they are very generalizable too. So that's why I think so many kinds of people and kinds Social issues seem to be talked about in this novel because it lays on the level of myth, but without feeling unfamiliarized, you know, in the ways that sometimes myths can. It's a myth, but it's it's generalizable, but not generic. It's specific enough that it captures your imagination and doesn't let go. Yeah, and it might be something about, like, the details are less in the characterization than in the books or in the nature descriptions. Lots of people now working on climate use Frankenstein, you know, because it's richly detailed, but not not exactly localizable. Like this is clearly a, a British story or this is clearly this kind of 19th century psychology or something like that, that makes it both feel like it's really speaking to now and to speaking to all times. I'm really happy you took the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much.